The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. The scripture reading today is from Exodus 20, 17, and Philippians 4, 10 through 13. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever circumstance, whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ, him who strengthens me. This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise be, be to, to Christ. Christ. Thank you, Anne. Good morning, everybody. Uh, I really appreciate Nate Tasker uh, mentioning earlier in the service uh, that we uh, were at the 20th year anniversary yesterday of 9-11 and uh, all that that means for uh, everybody in our part of the world. And what I'd like to do before I get into the sermon is um, I'd like to offer a prayer. Uh, and this is an adapted version of another prayer that I, that I found uh, in a put some of my own thoughts into it as well, but uh, let me lead us, uh, if you will, uh, in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, creator of all people and all nations, it is with sorrow and apprehension that we remember the tragic events that occurred on September 11 of 2001. Uh, concerning all of those, Lord, who died in the Twin Towers at the Pentagon and on United Airlines Flight 93, we entrust them to your loving care we pray that you would console their families, their friends, and all who mourn this loss in the hope that all who trust in you find peace and rest in your kingdom. Lord, we pray for those who courageously responded to provide aid and comfort to the afflicted. May their traumatic memories of that day be healed and transformed into strength and into positive resolution. We also pray, Lord, for ourselves as we seek your strength and guidance. We live in the aftermath of this tragedy and under the shadow of future acts of aggression. And so, Lord, we stand in need of your help and of your encouragement. Would you enable us, Father, to put an end to fear and an end to hate? Help us resolve to live lives that show respect and honor toward one another and all people. Help us resolve to live peacefully and resist the urge to settle disagreements with hate, slander, violence, or blaming entire ethnic groups, races, or religions for the world's problems. Lord, help us to resolve that grace, mercy, and justice, as opposed to hate, revenge, and retaliation, are the answer to a more prevailing world. And Lord, in the face of hatred, may we show love in times of despair. May we be voices of hope and builders of a better future. In times of darkness, May we be sources of light. May we resolve in our hearts that forgiveness is never a form of weakness, and it's always a source of strength in our lives and also for the world. 
And lastly, Father, may we lament and honor the loss of all life, including those who died in 2001, as well as in the current pandemic globally. Lord, in all of these losses, we ask that you would remind us often that our only comfort in life and in death is that we belong, body and soul, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you for that, and uh, now we get to the last sermon in the series that we've been in, uh, 20-part sermon. Started with uh, uh, 10 sermons on the life of Moses and then 10 on the law of Moses. This is the last one. You shall not covet. Uh, by the way, welcome uh, to our friends on the breezeway, uh, as well as those who are dialing in and those who are in the room. It's just uh, it's such a great encouragement to see your faces, as I was telling the 830 service. Uh, that is a ministry, just to be able to look at your face, uh, your whole face, and rejoice in uh, our ability to be in community and in life together. And so, so here's the start of today's uh, sermon. I was texting back and forth with a, with a local pastor here uh, in in Nashville, and I just said, "What a couple of years it's been!" And he, and years it's been, and he responded to me with a text that said, "We are all ready for the year 2020 to end, even if it doesn't happen until 2030." Uh, and his point, of course, is that that we are still in a world that is filled with unrest, and uh, there is really this universal longing that we can put all the trauma behind us, right? That, that, that hard will be a thing that we can put in the, the rearview mirror. We can get back to whatever nostalgic memories we have of, of, of what life was supposedly like before the pandemic. And uh, so today what I want to ask is, and it's really a question I think the texts like the one in front of us ask, what if this is the new normal? What if things don't change? What if things actually get worse than they've been in the last year and a half to two years in some way, shape, or form certainly don't want that to happen, but the question is, would joy be possible if things got harder instead of better? We don't live in unprecedented times. I I, want to remind us of this. I want to remind us that for over 70% of the world, Scott Saul's pandemic experience is what their imagination tells them paradise must be like. That's 70% of the world today. And if you are now a 21st century American who owns a home, a yard, and a car, you actually are in possession of more luxury than over 95% of people who lived in ancient times, just for perspective. And so Paul was among those ancients, and he wrote Philippians... The book of Philippians, which is widely known as his letter of joy, from prison. He was wrongly and unjustly imprisoned for being faithful to God. That was his crime. And yet he he writes this joyful letter. And and, 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 and in doing that, he just adds to the history uh, and the archives of of remarkable pieces of literature that have been written from behind bars or surrounded by prison walls. You've got the Apostle Paul, several of his letters. You've also got the book of Revelation uh, that was written by the Apostle John, such a hopeful, future-oriented letter. Uh, You've got Dietrich Bonhoeffer's work that he did uh, behind bars in Germany as he was awaiting his own execution for opposing Hitler. 
You've got John Bunyan, who wrote the classic Pilgrim's Progress, also from behind bars. You've got Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a, a Birmingham jail. You've got Solzhenitsyn's work and his many prison-inspired, incarceration-inspired uh, novels. You could go on and on, but, but here's, the, here's the interesting thing. The backdrop of you shall not covet uh, is not only hardship and prison walls, but prosperity. Paul says that both in abundance and scarcity, finding contentment is a secret that must be learned, that's not automatic. Another word for coveting is envy. Envy is when we resent other people's good fortune or when we rejoice in other people's misfortune. It's something that happens especially inside the culture of the heart, even if we don't speak it out loud. And so, so today to explore this subject, I want to talk about three points. Uh, number one, the problem of plenty. Number two, the gift of scarcity. And finally, the true source of our strength. So let's start with the problem of plenty. Verse 12, Paul says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and abundance. I've learned to tolerate plenty and abundance. I've learned to put up with it. I've learned to live with it. I've learned to survive plenty and abundance. That sounds counterintuitive, but that's what he says. Now, if we look back in chapter 3, Paul gives us a window into the life that he had lived before he knew Christ. And he, 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 had an, he had had an elite education, ran in elite circles, was, was ascending in fame and fortune and in career success and reputation and status. And he looks back and he says, that life of prosperity without Christ, in comparison to my prison life with Christ, is like dung. And that's a polite way of translating into the English language a Greek word that comes across in the original language like the S word. So it's as if Paul is saying it's better and, and more joyful and happy to be behind bars with Christ than it is to be flourishing in every possible way that the world defines flourishing without Christ. That's the secret, he says. So, so he's in prison and his life is full of joy and meaning. He's been mistreated, falsely accused, slandered, beaten, and his life is full of joy and meaning. And, and, and we could look into this and we could ask, is Paul certifi certifiably crazy? Is he nuts? Has he, has he lost it? Is he in denial or is he in on a secret that we all need? You know, this good life that, that Paul once had with, you know, the fame, the status, the success, the wealth, the illusion of control, um, what, what Paul recognizes here is that it all has a shelf life. The whole book of Ecclesiastes really points to that, 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 that there is a shelf life on the good life or on what, 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 what the world calls the good life. There's a shelf life on it. Why? Because it's finite. Everything that this so-called good life offers us is finite. It's temporary. In Lamont, in a hundred years, all new people, right? I mean, how many of us can, 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 can name from memory, from our knowledge, who has won the most Grammy Awards? 
Not a lot of us. Who, who, who among us can name, just from memory and knowledge, who the 10th U.S. president was? Who knows the biography and story of 25% of all U.S. presidents? Not a lot of people. Everything's fleeting. Everything is fleeting. And, and, and so when this is the case, there, there are actually two inescapable dynamics that people have to live with and contend with. One is anxiety about losing, and the other is the letdown that happens when we're winning. So let, let's talk about the anxiety that, that, that can happen when we are losing in the world's game. So, so when Paul reflects on the life that he had before Christ, he frames that life in competitive terms. If you go to his letter to the Galatians, he says, in my former life, I was advancing far beyond my contemporaries. That's how you think about your life when you're not living your life in, in, in reference to the abundance that you have in Christ. The, the only alternative is to compare your life to other lives and to determine whether or not you are measuring up. This is what coveting does. This is what envy does. It is constantly comparing. It is constantly competing. Constantly. And, 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 and what happens to the emotional equilibrium when that happens is that we, we are either glad or we are sad based on how we measure up against someone else. Their circumstances become more about us than they are about them. You could call it the King Saul syndrome. If you've read the King Saul account from, from the, the books of Samuel, especially 1 Samuel, uh, you know, the famous David defeating Goliath incident, right? That was David stepping in to do what King Saul was afraid to do, and that was fight the giant Goliath to win the battle against the Philistines on behalf of Israel. And as soon as David, you know, shortly after David wins that victory for, for Israel, the people of Israel start singing a song, and the lyrics go like this, Saul has slain his thousands. And if, if I'm King Saul, that sounds wonderful. They're praising me. They're, they think I'm great. They think I'm a superb leader. They think I'm wonderful. One man slaying thousands. But then the next lyric, David has slain his tens of thousands. And just in one moment, the heart of Saul, which feels deeply affirmed and, and large and in charge, all of a sudden feels deeply defeated and then deeply resentful, and then he puts a bounty on David's head to have David eliminated because of comparing and competing. Saul's got the position. He's the king, and, and, and yet he feels like he's got to get rid of this kid because this kid is more popular than he is in the eyes of people. And we can look at Saul and we can say, oh, how insecure. If I was the I wouldn't be that insecure if I was in his position. But really, I think we would. I mean, think of your if-onlys. You know, I, I wear a size 6 if only I could fit into a size 4. Or I wear a size 4, but if only I could fit into a size 2, or if I'm a size 2, if only I could fit into a 0, then I could be happy. Or, or you think about, you know, kids who try to get in Harvard, right? And most kids don't get into Harvard who try to get into Harvard. Um, or, or kids that get into Vanderbilt. Let's, let's bring it closer to home, right? So Vanderbilt, every fall, right? Right now, 
Vanderbilt is filled with a freshman class abundant with recent valedictorians and salutatorians, and the salutatorians still resent the fact that they weren't valedictorian, right? Second in a class of 2,000, and, and it's not enough, right? And so now you're at Vanderbilt, and you will soon realize, half of you at least, will soon realize you're in the bottom half of your class, right? Like, like there is no end to the potential for dis, uh, discontent, Right, let's say that, you know, right now my music career is, is on YouTube and, and, and my 23 followers, most of whom are part of my family, you know, th that's my audience. If only I could get in invited to do a house show in somebody's living room. And then you do the house show and you're like, if only I could get invited to play at 3rd and Lindsley. And then you're there and you say, if only I could get invited to play at the Ryman. And then you say, if only I could get invited to play at Nissan Stadium. And then you say, if only our band could get invited to play the Super Bowl, then you play the Super Bowl, and then you realize there are actually artists who have played the Super Bowl who have committed suicide. You guys, there's no end to the comparison. I earn five figures right now. If only I could earn six figures like them. Or I earn six, but, but if only I could earn seven figures like her. Or I earned seven, but if only I could earn eight. There's always somebody nearby to compare and compete with in our hearts. If only. Whatever's on the other side of that if only, uh, the Norwegian playwright Henrik Ibsen calls it the life lie. He says, take the life lie away from anybody and it will just destroy their emotional equilibrium. If only I had a better church situation. Remember that screw tape letter, letter that, that, that you know, C.S. Lewis put together, you know, senior devil mentoring a junior your devil, and there's one in which the senior devil says to the junior devil, get, get the, the, the Christian, this is how you're going to draw the Christian away from God, get the Christian in a church, but don't just get them in a church, make sure they sit next to somebody who has a double chin so they can judge them for, for lack of self-control with, with, you know, their eating. Or, or sit them next to somebody with squeaky boots so they're distracted constantly from whatever is going on and whatever, you know, word of God is being prevent, presented from up front. Make sure you sit them next to somebody who's singing off-key so they can resent the person who's singing off-key and get their eyes off of their maker. You know, get them to the point where they think that, that church is actually for their personal enrichment a, rather than as a personal sacrifice to God and an opportunity and occasion to love the people of God when you show up. Get them to think that. And soon they will want to remove themselves from the church. And, and, and when they remove themselves from there, they will want to remove themselves from, from the enemy himself, the enemy being God. It's anything. C.S. Lewis says comparison. Compare your job. Compare your office culture. Compare your neighborhood, the size of your home, your square footage. You know, compare your fire pit to somebody else's, and, and you're always going to be, you're, you're, it's always going to feel gross. C.S. Lewis would say elsewhere, comparison is the thief of joy. Anxiety about losing, but also the letdown when you're winning. Now, that, that's the whole Ecclesiastes book, right? The, the writer of Ecclesiastes is the paragon of success, of wealth, of fame, of power, of ro you know, having romance and, and all the things. 
He's got it all, and, and, and here he is writing this, this, this book of Ecclesiastes as an older man reflecting on his life, assessing his life, and his conclusion is this. Everything is vapor. Vanity. Meaningless. Vapor. It's, it's like, it's like you, you, know, you take all these things, sex, money, power, wealth, reputation, notoriety, fame, fortune, being at the top of the org chart, you put it all in your hand and you, you hold it tight for as long as you can, but you realize even as you're holding it, the smoke is just seeping out from between your fingers. You, you can't hold it any more than you can hold water. Then he says, here's the end of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. He, he, that's the secret. That's the secret. You know, Thomas Watson, the famous Puritan, said, as a ferryman, by, by the way, a ferry is a boat. Having lived in New York, I know what a ferry is still. A ferry is a boat. So as a ferryman, a boat owner, takes in so many passengers to increase his fare or increase his income that he sinks his boat because he takes in too many passengers. So a covetous man takes in so much gold, or you could put in there something else, reputation, romance, career path, etc., takes in so much of it to increase his estate that he drowns himself into perdition. This just echoes of what Jesus said. It's harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, which is another way of saying it's, it's, it's harder for a rich person to be truly happy and full. to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to pass through the eye of the needle. Jesus is either being hyperbolic there or he's actually making a strong statement that it is actually that hard. It will actually take a miracle for human beings who anchor their hearts in a finite world to find contentment and joy and emotional flourishing and equilibrium in God alone. It is that hard for a human being to find Joy. You do a global study of where the anxiety and depression is. You, you, you might be alarmed at what you'll find. The lowest rates globally of anxiety and depression are among people who have nothing. The highest rates of anxiety and depression around the world are among the people who have everything. Just let that sink in for a moment. The problem of plenty... Finding contentment even in plenty is a secret that must be learned. And so, so then we get the gift of scarcity. Verse 12, Paul says, you know, you've got, to face, you've got to learn how to face having plenty. You've also got to learn what it means to face living in scarcity. And that's his current circumstance. He's facing hunger. He's facing need. And he says this, too, is a secret. You know, Paul is, is going to be executed, and he knows that. And yet he says in verse 10, I greatly rejoice in the Lord. Not in my circumstances, but in the Lord. I greatly rejoice. And so if you go to the 16th chapter of Acts, you'll see the whole story, the whole context behind the writing of this letter. It's when, it's when Paul and Silas are imprisoned in Philippi. And it says that they start singing hymns. from. That's their reaction. That's their response to being imprisoned. They start singing hymns hymns about the majesty of God. You know, their, their, their lives according to the world get smaller, but their hearts just enlarge in response to it. And, and, and it says that that is actually, their joy from behind the prison walls is, is actually what led the Philippian jailer to get converted to faith in Christ. Seeing their joy, you know, that, that as the, the, the hymn we're going to sing at the end of the, 
of the service today seeks them through pain. Reminds me of the Old Testament uh, person, Job. It's the oldest book in the Bible. He was a wealthy man with a very full life. And in one day, he, in the span of one day, he loses everything. He loses his money. He's the wealthiest man on earth. He loses his money. He loses his career. All ten of his kids die in a terrorist attack. He loses his wife's respect, at least for a time. He loses the, the support of his closest friends, all in, in just one full sweep. And his gut response is this. He falls on his knees he worships God and he says, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When his life is reduced to nothing, when all Job has left is his nakedness, his need, and his God, he finds joy. One modern example that I can think of is, is Tim Keller, mentor in my life. Uh, if you know who he is, he's a, he's a pastor in New York City who has been diagnosed recently with pancreatic cancer, which is one of the worst forms of cancer that you can get. It's most often untreatable. And he was doing an interview recently with, um, with Justin Taylor and Kevin DeYoung. And they asked him how his fight with cancer is going, and his answer was remarkable. He says, I've never, been ha I've never been in a fight with cancer, and I'm not in a fight with cancer now. My fight is with my own heart's response to cancer. My fight is to lay hold of the secret of contentment. And, you know, he rattled off you know, truths that, that, that can easily be found, and you can write this down in the Psalms, in Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. If you go back and listen to this recording, you can write all those down. Those are great sort of go-to places for these realities that are through, throughout all of Scripture. So, so talk about the secret of contentment. Another thing that Keller said in this interview is that, you know what's remarkable? as we meditate on these truths that, 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 that we've been drilling in to our hearts and minds all of our lives in times of plenty, and now that we're in a time of scarcity, when we're facing death all day long, quite, quite literally, the remarkable miracle of this season is it's the happiest season that my wife and I have ever had together. It's a secret, but it must be learned, which brings us finally to the source of our strength. Paul says, I have learned the secret of contentment. In other words, it starts in your head. It starts with mental exercises. Jesus talks about loving the Lord your God with all your mind. The Apostle Paul in, in Romans 12 says to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He says to the Corinthians, I think it's the Corinthians, or maybe it's Colossians, he says, take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. What made Tim Keller Tim Keller is this very thing over 50 years of praying through the entire book of the Psalms at least once a month, and over 50 years of reading through the entire Bible at least once a year during the times of abundance. That's what prepares a person for the times of scarcity. That's what enables somebody to face their deepest, darkest fears. 
Even Jesus, the Bible tells us, learned obedience through the things that he suffered. What does that mean? Look at, look at where Jesus suffered the most. Look at when Satan tempts him in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4 with every temptation that Satan buffets him with that we sang about in the, in the hymn, though Satan should buffet, though trial should come. When, when, when Jesus was buffeted with temptations from Satan, every time he responded, it is written, and then he quotes scripture. It is written, quotes scripture. It is written, quotes scripture, all from memory. And then he's on the cross, the most excruciating circumstance any human being's ever faced, dying for the sins of the world, bearing that burden all on his own. And what does he do? He starts quoting from the 22nd Psalm from memory. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And quoting another Psalm, into your hands, Lord, I commit my spirit. If the Son of God was this reliant on Scripture, what makes us think that we don't need Scripture like he did? It's a question worth asking. In Scripture, we find this secret of what the poet Wallace Stevens called an imperishable bliss. This poet says that, 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 that the secret to contentment, to find contentment, we need to find an imperishable bliss. Even in contentment, I feel the need for this. A bliss that's imperishable, that doesn't have a shelf life that will be here in Anne Lamott's 100 years, that will be here when everything else is eliminated and forgotten and when we're all has-beens in the eyes of the world. You're never a has-been in the eyes of God through the grace of Christ. I'll give the second to last word to Paul David Tripp, who is part of our tradition, part of our Christian tradition. He's a counselor and a pastor, and he says this about envy or coveting. He says, envy is idolatrous. It always puts the creation in the place of the Creator. Envy evaluates life on the basis of physical experiences, relationships, and possessions. Envy says that the good life is all about having a bigger pile of creation stuff than your neighbor does. Envy is obsessively comparative, always weighing the size of your stuff against the stuff of the people that are near you. And why does envy do this? Because envy places its identity, its inner sense of well-being, and its meaning and purpose in the basket of creation instead of in the hands of the Creator. Envy looks to creation for satisfaction and peace. Envy looks to creation for life. Envy looks to creation for what only the Creator can give. Or as C.S. Lewis would say, we are far too easily satisfied. We're like the, the kid who's invited to go to the beach, you know, a kid who's invited you know, for a week at 30A, and, and he says, I, I want to stay here in my mud puddle and, and just keep playing here. C.S. Lewis says that's what all of us are like when we anchor our hearts in temporal, created, perishable things. Enters Paul the Apostle, who says, I know how. He says it twice, I know how. I have learned the secret of contentment. And I don't want to burst anybody's bubble. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Was not conceived chiefly for athletes who are quoting that scripture so that Christ would give them a victory. This is a scripture to quote in the face of defeat. I can do all things from jail through Christ who gives me strength. I can do all things while facing death all day long through Christ who gives me strength. You want to know why I love our worship pastor? Have you heard his public story? You want to know why? Because he knows how to pastor people from a place of loss and a place of 
scarcity in a place of uncertainty. And I'm not going to blow his cover. You can go listen. Listen to his interview on the, the pivot with Andy Osinga, and you'll know why we have such a treasure in Nathan, Nathan Tasker. We have so many treasures like that who suffer well, who sing it as well with my soul and mean it. Those are the people I want to be close to. And I hope the same is true of you. We certainly want to be close to Jesus as we come to his table now. And so as we do that, will you join me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, there are those who have learned the secret of contentment. And those, there are those of us who still struggle mightily to learn the secret of contentment. We don't know why we can't be happy when we have everything in comparison to the rest of the world today and certainly in comparison to the ancient world. We, we don't know why we can't find joy in that. And we also don't know why it feels like we don't have any resources for the slightest irritation, let alone for things like devastation, things like 9-11, things like the, the effect of a, a global pandemic. Remind us once again, and then again and again and again, that as the psalmist says from his own place of distress, eternal pleasures exist at the right hand of God and are immune from circumstances. And what is at the right hand of God? The only thing that we know is at the right hand of God, where, which is the pleasure center of the universe, is Jesus Christ himself who is seated at the right hand of God. Teach us to know him. Teach us to learn Christ, as the Apostle Paul writes to us, that we too might be able to say with full conviction, I know how to live out of the secret of contentment which I have learned for times of plenty and for times of sorrow. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray all of these things. Amen.